Well, good morning, church. Hey, welcome. If I've never met you, my name's Jeffrey, and uh, I'm one of the pastors on staff. I'm the younger, prettier David, uh, so I'm excited to be here. Uh, North Campus, we're glad you're there. Online Campus, we love that you're a part of our family, and uh, I'm excited about this morning. Before we kind of jump into where I feel like the Lord has taken us, uh, I really just wanted to say thank you. Uh, this is I, when we were first talking about like all the sermons we were going to hit, all the sermon series for the year. Uh, David brought up doing a series, a seven-week series on just hard questions that the church faces or, or reasons that people deconstruct their faith. And, and I, I love that we are a church body that's willing to go into the muddy, murky, difficult places. It's way easier to just get up every week and preach like really rah-rah sermons. And we need those. And we need like sermons that, that like talk about the joy of the Lord. Like we need all those. We also need to dive into really difficult questions, especially these. And so like one thing that I've said on the pre-show that we do for our online campus the last few weeks is that we, uh, We'll hit these questions every week, and I think our tendency is often to go, well, this question doesn't really pertain to me. So like last week we were talking about the Bible. I'm like, well, I believe everything about the Bible, so I'm good. And, and it's easy for us to just dismiss the question like right off in the beginning. And my challenge for you this week, and we've got a couple more weeks left of this, is even if these aren't a question you might personally, individually face, there is a high likelihood that someone around you either faces it now or will face it in the future. And parents, our kids are growing up to ask these questions. And so these are questions that are facing, big questions that are facing the church. And, and my challenge for us is just go, even if I might not need this question this particular week, I do know that there are people all around, all over asking each of these questions. And so that's my challenge encouragement for you this morning. Uh, as I've gotten older, I have... Uh, I've realized that I am like an incredibly black and white thinker. So like my mentality is it is either black or white. It is right or wrong. Uh, I really realized that when I got married uh, because women, you live in the gray and that's fine. I live outside of this gray, okay? It's like black, white. It is, there's just no in between for me. Uh, and so that's carried on into the way like I live my life. Things are either right or wrong. So there's not a lot of wiggle room. It's right or it's wrong. And for me, because I'm very excitable, like, I am the dramatic person in our marriage. Like, I am the one who gets all worked up and excited. So it's either, like, really right or it is the worst thing ever. Correct, incorrect, just, unjust. And that justice piece, as much as any part of my personality, that justice piece, it shows up in the dumbest places all the time. So... This is not like a dumb place. This is just a place that I've experienced it a lot. My sister, Sarah, so I need to say this because I'm going to talk about my wife in a little while, and I always forget to explain this. So my sister's name is Sarah. So she is three years younger than me. She's awesome. She has cerebral palsy. My wife's name is Sarah. Those are different human beings, okay? I did not marry my sister. You need to know that because if you think that, then we're done with this. So I, uh, I Sarah, my sister has cerebral palsy, and she... Uh, and so there's different degrees of cerebral palsy. Some, some people are confined to a wheelchair their whole life. Others, like, you would never know they have it. And Sarah's somewhere in the middle. She, she can walk, but it's a struggle. So, like, I've never experienced when every single step I take I have to think about, and it hurts. And that's Sarah. Every step Sarah takes, she thinks about the step in front of her, and it hurts. And so we, for her whole life, have really found a ton of value in handicapped parking spots. So like we want to find those because knowing every step for Sarah is going to hurt. And so she needs the shortest distance every time that she's going to walk. So when people park in the handicapped spots and don't need it, there is a rage that burns inside of me. I've done ungodly things in those moments. I, I 
have stopped when there was a person getting out of a car that was not handicapped and I've rolled down my window and I've yelled at them. Strangers. I'm a pastor. I've been a pastor a long time, almost as long as I, I mean, I've, I should know better than to do that. I've, I've stopped right when I saw them pull in and I've honked my horn, but not like the, I'm trying to inform you of something, you know, the like beep, beep, like don't bump into me. It's like, man, I just hold it for like 30 seconds while I stare at them in the parking lot. But probably the most egregious, and if this is you, like, I need you to know two things. One, I've grown from this moment. And two, I've repented a lot for this moment. So we were driving into a restaurant here in town, and there was one parking spot left, uh, and there's one handicapped parking spot left, and, and so my, we were driving in, and then uh, a big, dumb truck drove in at the same time. So... If you've been here very long, you've heard me make fun of big trucks because I think it's funny because we like big trucks. And this is one of those. It was like one of those trucks that has the big tires on it, right? They don't need it. They're driving on 83, 84 all the time. What are you going to do with that big tire? The truck lifted. Why? It was fine the way it was. They've got a hitch on the back. It's never been used. Like it's that truck, okay? The truck that I see and already hate. And so this time, this truck pulled into the last handicapped parking spot. And I mean, I don't know what happened in me. I broke, like something snapped. And so they go in the store and I park my car and I stand in the parking lot and I take a picture of this truck and I post it on social media. Which if you're curious, that's the way to deal with anger. (laughs) Straight to Facebook. I (laughs) I told you I've grown, okay? And I posted this picture, and I said something like, I can't remember the exact details. I've tried to wash it from my brain. But I I said something like, it is shameful to me whenever someone is so selfish that they would have the audacity to park in a handicapped spot when they don't need it. And now I'm taking in my disabled sister, having to walk all the way across the parking lot. If you know this person, you go find them, and you tell them, shame on you. And I posted it. I told you I was mad. And then I walked inside the store. And uh, I just stood there. I was going to wait for them to come out to their truck. What was I going to do? Look at me. I'm going to fight them? I mean, unless it's a child, I'm in bad shape. Justice matters to me a lot, sometimes at an irrational level. And that's all of us, actually. We all have this justice piece inside of us that, that we want to see happen. We want, when there is a wrong, we want to see it corrected justly. Like you may be driving down the highway, right? And you're doing 72, 73, and a 70, just minor law breaking, nothing that big. And uh, the car comes, there's a car, like little sports car comes flying up behind you. But they can't pass you, and so they start tailgating you. What do you do? You brake check them, right? Be honest, this is church, you gotta tell the truth. You slow down, you're like, I can go 65, you watch. I've gone 45 on the highway before just to see what happens. Here's the dumb part of that. Just as a side note, it has nothing to do with my sermon, but I thought about it first service, so I'm going to tell you to. Why would we do that? All they're going to do is smash into the back of your car. That's the dumbest thing to do in that moment. But okay, it's just different. Nothing. Okay, so they're tailgating you, and you're getting more and more angry, and then finally they get a chance to pass you. And so they gun it. I mean, 95, fly around you, and then you come around the corner, and you see those lights come on, and they get pulled over. There is no joy that compares to that moment. I mean, like, I feel happy thinking about it right now. Just like, you just wave at them. I mean, just see ya. You have a great day. 
$200 ticket, you idiot. Like we do that, right? We want to see wrongs corrected. We want to see justice happen in times where we see that there is injustice. I worked at United a long time and, uh, and people for some reason would always be like, they're mean to cashiers. Like, don't be mean to a cashier. It's a 17 year old trying to pay his car payment, okay? That was me, be nice to them. But people would be mean to them all the time. And I would watch this interaction happen and I would watch their card get declined. And I mean, it took everything in me to not go, hey, you have a great day without your groceries. Like, I mean, we want justice to happen. There is a peace inside of every single one of us. There's a justice peace in us. And here's the reason why, because there, this justice peace is inside of us because we are Christians, as Christians, we are made in the image of God and God is a just God. Justice matters. So how then do we reconcile that justice peace that is in every one of us because we're made in the image of God? How do we reconcile this justice peace inside of us with a history in the church that is littered and full of injustice and hurt people in our wake? How do we reconcile that? How can we possibly trust a church that has caused so much injustice? You might be thinking, like, yeah, come on, injustice in the church. The Crusades, you ever heard of the Crusades? Hopefully so. Otherwise, their history books have failed us. Christians decided that they wanted to stop the advancement of another religion, and so what they did is they slaughtered those people. And they wanted some territories back, and so they killed them to take it. That was The church did that. The church was a part of that. The church was leading that, which is even, even contrary to what we know. It's like we want other Christians. You know what we should do if we want people to become Christians? Not murder them. Like that is one part of our history in the church. The Salem witch trials. Salem witch trials began in the church for a bunch of different reasons. But some of them were, there was feuds between families and they used the Salem witch trials as a good opportunity to get somebody killed. Or they assumed that every person that didn't come to their church was therefore a bad person and so they used that as an opportunity to see dozens and dozens of people killed in the Salem witch trials. I'm not sure if you've heard of this thing called slavery. Pretty big part of the church history. Christian leaders not, not only like had slaves, but they fought for the advancement of slavery and getting more slaves. And then as they did that, they treated their slaves just as bad as anyone else might treat a slave. Like that is a big part of the history of the church. And if you follow the Me Too movement that's happening right now, there's a subset of that that's really, really prevalent. And, and as a pastor, is just breaks me every time I read about it. It's called Church Two where men and women are talking about the abuses they've experienced in the church. Sexual abuse, emotional abuse, trauma from pastors, leaders, small group leaders, youth pastors, elders, deacons. And it'll break you if you read it. Stuff that happened inside the walls of a church. Heard of the Holocaust? Hitler professed to be a Christian. But even take that aside, because he obviously did lots of unchristian things. There were tons of Christians that participated actively in the Holocaust, and there were even more that participated passively in the Holocaust by watching people get killed day in and day out and doing nothing. That is the history of the church. Are we having fun? 
No. I'm not sure I've ever been on this stage and it been more quiet in this room. Because there's a justice piece inside all of us and we know that every single thing I just listed is unjust and we could look at a myriad of, this is like six things I said and we could go on and on and on about times that the church has been unjust or individuals in the church have done awful, horrible, despicable things. And we ask ourselves, why are we doing this? What is the point? Like, if this is the church, if the church is this injustice piece, like, why are we even a part of it? Why would I want to be a part of it? And listen, this, this issue of injustice in the church is one of the primary reasons that people are deconstructing their faith. Because if that's what it looked like, then I don't want any bit of it. And maybe for you, it's not even the history of it. That bothers you. But you're sitting in this room or you're watching online or at the North Campus and you feel it personally because you've experienced abuse in a church. You've experienced the trauma of something that happened in a life group or something that happened in a church growing up. And that's your world. And so you get to the places like, if this is what it is, then I don't want it. We believe this lie that I, I will just, I'll love God, but I'll hate the church. And that doesn't work. You can't love God and hate the church because the church is the bride of Christ. So you can't love God and hate his bride. Imagine walking up to me after service. Like, Jeffrey, God, I love it when you preach. You should do it more. And I would tell you, email David. <laughs> like, you're looking fit. You must be going to the gym. I like the way you dress. Those are nice glasses. You're going bald okay. Like, all those things. I think you're awesome. I love you but I hate your wife. She's the worst. Like when I get around her, I wish I was around her less. Every time I'm around her, I actually think, please let me never be around. Like I hate your wife. I mean, like if I didn't punch you, which even in a fight, I would still punch you and then get beat up. Like I would be very angry in this moment. Everything you said nice about me would be immediately thrown out the window because you said you hated the person that matters more to me than any human that has ever lived. Like, she is my person. We are one. She is my bride. You cannot possibly love me and hate my wife. That does not work. We can't possibly love Christ and hate his bride. So we have to ask ourselves, how do I get past this angst that I feel? And I can tell you feel it right now. How do I get past the angst I feel knowing the injustice that has existed in the church and still love the church? Can I even possibly trust a church responsible for so much injustice? Jesus helps us navigate this question in a story he tells in Luke 10. So if you will find a Bible, we're going to camp out in Luke 10 starting in verse 25. If you didn't bring a Bible, there's one around you, one underneath your chair, the chair in front of you. Uh, if you're online, right there on the screen, you can see it. Uh, Luke 10, 25, it's the parable of the Good Samaritan. And even outside of the walls of the church, people know what the story of the Good Samaritan is. You can say, hey, I saw this person be a Good Samaritan, and everyone pretty much knows what you're talking about, except we're missing a part of the story. So starting in verse 25, it says this, And behold, the lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? 
All throughout the Gospels, you will see the Pharisees and the lawyers, they, they try to bait Jesus all the time. This is one of those times. They're trying to get Jesus to say something, to mess up or do something that they can then go, ha, gotcha, now we can go after you. Or discredit him, or throw him in jail, beat him. They were going to find a reason or they were going to try to find a reason. So he's putting Jesus to the test and he says, hey, what do I do to live forever? And Jesus is Jesus, so you weren't going to trick him very easily. He goes like this. What is written in the law? What, what is written in the law? How, how do you read it? Jesus reversed it on him. He said, ah, no, no, no. You tell me. You know the law. You tell me. And he says this. The lawyer says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. Did I do that out of order? Oh, I did it out of order. That was another. All your heart, all your soul, all your strength, and with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus responds, and he says, you've answered correctly. Do this, and you will live. So this man basically, the lawyer basically says, all right, you got to love God, and you got to love people. And Jesus goes, you know what? That's exactly right. That is the way that you inherit eternal life. And you can tell, based on what's about to happen, that that is not how Jesus, I mean, that's not how the lawyer expected this dynamic, this conversation to go. Because he says this, but he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and he fell among the robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down that road and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So Jesus breaks into this story and he's like, all right, you wanna know who your neighbor is, let me tell you. There's a man, he's going from Jerusalem to Jericho. Now, Jesus is telling this story to a primarily Jewish audience. So this primarily Jewish audience is going to picture the person in this story as a Jewish person. So the man going from Jerusalem to Jericho is a Jew in their mind, and then up walks a priest. That would be like a pastor walking up, seeing this person left half dead, stripped, all his money gone, seeing him and going, I'm good, I'm gonna walk over here. Church person, ignoring him. Then it goes on. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and he saw him pass by on the other side, this Levite is another church person, another religious person, sees this person hurting, broken, on the ground, turns, goes on the other side of the road, doesn't go, hey, y'all, somebody help this person. Not only doesn't meet their needs, does nothing to help them at all. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and he bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and he gave them to the innkeeper, saying, take care of him and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. So this Jewish audience sees this in their minds, this story, this Jewish man beaten up, left for dead. A priest and a Levite, two church people, ignore him completely and then up walks a Samaritan. They hate Samaritans. Not like, like dislike, like I will never let my children wear the color burnt orange or maroon, right? I grew up in Lubbock, so like that is a no-go. Don't put them in your closet, don't wear them to school, not happening. They hate each other. They hear this Samaritan is the next one up. And what they expect, you know, if the, if the church people just ignored him, the Samaritan's gonna come up and he's just gonna like kick him. 
Like take the rest of his stuff, maybe even just go ahead and finish him off. This Samaritan is going to finish the deed. That's what they are all going to think. And then the Samaritan picks him up, bandages his wounds, takes care of him, takes him to the inn, pays two days wages to take care of him, and then tells the innkeeper, guess what? I'm coming back. If you pay any more, I'll make sure you're paid everything back. And their minds would have been blown that a Samaritan would have cared about a Jewish person like that at all. The story finishes like this. Which of these three do you think proved to be the neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers, Jesus says? He said, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said, you go and do likewise. He said, this this guy's neighbor, you, you asked the question, who is my neighbor? This guy's neighbor was the one who showed him mercy. It didn't matter that it was a Samaritan and Jew. It didn't matter any of that. It just mattered that somebody chose to see the one person and show mercy. That is that guy's neighbor. It is everyone who is in need of mercy, which is every single human being that has ever lived. And we can take this parable a bunch of different ways. You can talk about like caring for the needy and the broken. Like that is a way you can take it. But where we're going today is this. Jesus uses the parable of the Good Samaritan to point out the hypocrisy in the church. It's a priest. Like you're you're a professional Christian. How do you not take care of the hurt guy? Levi, you know the law. How do you not take care of this hurt person? He's pointing out that there is this hypocrisy in the church, that we are good at saying things one way and doing them another, playing the church role and then living the unchurched life. We're good at, at making sure that like, in public what people see is a mask, but what's behind is really the real us. Like We're good at doing things that we don't want to do and not doing things that we do. Paul talked about it like this. For I don't understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want, But I do the very thing I hate, for I do not do the good that I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. I can relate to this verse as much as any verse in all the Bible. I constantly am like, I'm doing the stuff that I don't want to do, and I know the things that I need to do, and I don't do those. And that, in and of its foundation, is hypocrisy. And it's easy for me, and I bet if we're just real, raw, honest with ourselves, it's easy for us to be the priest or the Levite and take the easier road of not dealing with the issue, the injustice, the broken, and just go on our own way. We would never, like, admit that. Like, if I were to go, okay, raise your hand if you've done that. But that's been our world, and that's our, often, our go-to And the hypocrisy that emanates from the church right now, as much as any other, is that we can do all the religious things and miss the people in front of us. See, when we go back to the story, this, the, what began the parable of the Good Samaritan, it was like, what can I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus says, you tell me. i got to love God with all that I am and love my neighbor. And then who's my neighbor? And Jesus spends the rest of that parable is telling us who our neighbor is, and it's everyone that we might ever come in contact with. And Jesus does that because we as believers are so quick and it's so easy for us to do the religious stuff. To play the religious role, to come to church twice a month, maybe if you're radical three times a month, maybe even pay your tithes, maybe serve. Like it's easy for us to do the religious things that we should do and miss the most important things. That scripture says, love God with all that you are. 
Not love him in the easy places. Love him with every single aspect, every moment, every second of every single day. Love him with the totality of who you are. And then love your neighbor as yourself. In every single area of injustice that has crept its ugly head into the church is because we forgot those two things. But these injustices, they they are not the defining characteristic of what the church has been or what the church will be. They are a symptom of a sickness that exists in us because we are too quick to forget the gospel. Us remembering the beauty of Jesus dying on the cross for us, us remembering the reality that we are saved through grace, it almost always shows itself in the way that we love the people around us. We're quick to forget that we're that man broken, hopeless, stripped of everything that we could ever have, devoid of life, living in bondage. That is me and then Jesus. God chose to send his son, his perfect son, to this earth to live a perfect life and die a brutal death. We love to sanitize the cross. It's prettier when it's white and clean. And we forget the brutality of the payment that Jesus paid for my sins. My sins. My sins are what put Jesus on the cross. My hypocrisy resting in this darkest moment in human history. It was my junk, my mess that caused Jesus to have to go to the cross. And then he did. He went to the cross. Did I deserve it? No, I'm an idiot. Full of shame, full of sin, living lives of hypocrisy all the time. That is all of us before Jesus. And then Jesus, that is the beauty of the gospel. And whenever we remember that that is who we are, broken people without hope until Jesus, when we remember the beauty of the gospel, It causes us to then turn around and live out that love God with all that we are in a different way. And love our neighbor as ourself differently. And it's those times that we as the the, the big C church, not Beltway, but like the big church. It's those times when we have forgotten the gospel and forgotten the most important things that injustice has crept into the church. Abortion. At its foundation is us forgetting how much God values each and every, every person that has ever lived or will ever live. The Crusades, it's not the gospel to murder people before they can find out about Jesus. That's the contrary to the gospel. Abuses in the church, this, this church too movement, God didn't put people in places of leadership so they could hurt other people. As leaders, we're supposed to lay our lives down and do everything we can to put everyone in a position to experience God. Racism, Holocaust, all of these things are symptoms of a sickness that exists in us when we forget the radical nature of the gospel of Jesus Christ, that we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, with the blood of Jesus on the cross and his resurrection three days later. And the question about trusting a church responsible for so much injustice is a fair question. Because too many times the church has forgotten the gospel. But here's my encouragement for you this morning because I know we spent like 25 minutes in heavy. We don't just throw out everything. 
because of the times of injustice. We call them out. See, we as the church, we've got to stop trying to sanitize the past, which is what our nature is. Like, we don't want to act like we did anything with slavery. Like, we want to brush all that aside and, and move on to other things. we got to recognize there is injustice that has existed in the church. Recognize it, call it out, point it out. But don't throw everything out just because of those times. See, we don't do that with, like, the medical field. Doctors have done some awful things over the years. Awful. If you never heard the Larry Nasser story, you should hear it. It's brutal and sad, heartbreaking, the effect that this doctor caused. I'm still going to go to the doctor next time I get sick. I'm not going to go to him. Uh, no one can now. Like I'm not, I, I recognize that there are doctors that are broken and, and make bad decisions and cause harm, but I'm still going to be a part of like going to the doctor whenever I get sick because not all doctors are that kind of doctor. There are a lot of incredible doctors doing amazing things. We don't throw everything out because of those times, and we don't need to do that with the church. We can trust a church that has been responsible for a lot of injustice in times where we forgot the gospel because of what happens when the church remembers the gospel. When the church remembers all that we have received, the world changes. Yes, Christians played a big role in slavery. Do you know who were the forefront of trying to fight against slavery and end it? Followers of Jesus. There's a man named William Wilberforce, if you ever want to look him up. He's a, got a great story. He also has a great nickname. His nickname is the Mighty Shrimp, which is an awesome nickname. <laughs> um, pretty great. He uh, is in the British Parliament, and he uh, finds Jesus. He goes to a meeting that John Wesley was preaching at, and John Wesley is a famed evangelist. And, and William Wilberforce finds Jesus and, and radically saved, just Completely different. So he goes to his buddy. His buddy's name is John Newton. And John Newton wrote the song Amazing Grace. And so he tells John Newton, like, I found Jesus. Now I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go work in a church. And John Newton's like, hey, bro, chill. He probably didn't say that because he's British. But like something like that. It's like, hey, calm down. You got to like pray about this first and see. So William Wilberforce spends a year and a half praying and asking God, like, do I need to go into the ministry? And feels like God says, no, instead he needs to make it his life's mission to see slavery eradicated in Europe. So he does. He stays in Parliament, fights, 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 becomes a part of a group that actually helps pass the Act of Emancipation in 1833. And two days before this man took his last breath, he saw slavery eradicated in Europe. Radical things happen when Christians remember the gospel. See, when Dr. Martin Luther King was going to the South and he was like talking to the South about the racism that exists, it existed in the South, he didn't go, hey, you idiot, stop treating people bad. He said, hey, y'all, remember God. Remember what he's done. Remember what he has done in you. Remember what he's supposed to do through you. That is his message to the South. That was his message to the South. Do we still have issues with racism in the South? Absolutely. But is it different now because of what that man did? Absolutely. Because he pointed people back to the gospel and into the power of the gospel. Education. The whole idea of education for all. So for long segments of time, education was only for the upper class. 
So the idea of like lower class people, middle class people getting educated was birthed out of the Reformation, a Christian movement of the first 125-ish universities that started in the United States. Almost every single one was founded by believers on Christian principles. Hospitals, hospitals, so many of them are tied directly to a believer or a church or someone like that that instituted and began hospitals. The first hospital in the western part of the world was begun by a woman in the year 400 AD, a follower of Jesus, who had had her life radically changed by the gospel. Orphanages, homes for the elderly and infirmed, ministries, nonprofits that do stuff for people that have disabilities, people that have needs, and widows and orphans. So, so many of them are connected or tied directly to the church and the followers of Jesus who've had their lives radically changed by the gospel. Whenever men and women remember who God is and what he's done for us and what he calls us to do in loving people, we rise up against injustice both inside and outside of the walls of the church. Yes, there are tons of atrocities that have been committed in the name of Jesus, but that is not what he had for the church. He has us seeing the one. See, you have a role to play in in combating injustice. And maybe you're like me, and as we talk about this whole topic, it just feels overwhelming. Like, I remember just this week as I was getting ready and getting my heart and spirit ready to preach, I remember just feeling, like, weighted down, like, I don't, I'm me. What in the world am I going to do to combat all these huge issues that, that have happened in the past, or even ones that we're seeing in the church right now? Like, what can I possibly do? I'm just little old me. And the reality is, is it's not that we're asking the question wrong. It's not what can we do. It's what do we need to do? Because we must do something. See, we don't get the opportunity. We should never desire to be the priest and the Levite who sees the one and ignores it. We've got to be the, we've got to be the Samaritan person who sees the one issue, who sees the one circumstance, who sees the one thing and goes, I'm going to take care of it, but not just take care of it. I'm going to make sure this person is taken care of moving forward. And it's going to require action. Listen, I, I'm fine with social media. It is what it is. I'm bad at it, but I'm fine with people being a part of it. And one of the things that you see a lot of times when we see an injustice is we, like, post about it to raise awareness. But imagine the priest. So you got the Samaritan guy hurting over here, bleeding, calling out for help, dying. Priest walks over here and he grabs his like iPhone one, takes a picture and goes, y'all help the needy. There's lots of them, help them. What did he do? I mean, he raised awareness and there are times that raising awareness is what needs to happen. So don't get that wrong. But often we say that we're raising awareness as an excuse to not actually do anything and not do any action. And if we want to play a role in combating injustice in the world, we must do something. It will require action. And here's what we have to understand. We just got to see the one thing for me. The person in front of me. Those guys are all walking down a road and they see the man hurting. They just saw him. The one thing for them. And I can't tell you what the the one thing for you might be. I do not know. But I know this, 
your one thing is probably going to be different than somebody else's one thing. And that's okay. We don't all have to have the same one issue, one injustice, one person, one circumstance that we are trying to go after and fix. That's not what it's supposed to look like. What it's supposed to look like is the church being mobilized by the beauty of the gospel to go out into a hurting and broken world and go, I'm going to see this one, and I'm going to see this one, and I'm going to see this one. And when we do that, the world shakes. It's altered when we take the light of Christ that exists in us into a dark world. So you've got to ask yourself, what is the one? What's the one thing you're supposed to do? Maybe in this section, maybe you're supposed to See the orphan. That kid's had injustice in, the, in his life or her life. You're going to love them, care for them. Maybe, maybe over here, it's, you know what happens when a, a military spouse gets deployed. You want to try to like meet the needs of the family here and then also be there when they come home because they see injustice all over where they're going. And they come back hurting, broken. Maybe, maybe up here, maybe, maybe your deal is you know that the primary thing that's killing people in Africa is actually dirty water. More than anything else, dirty water is what's killing people in Africa. And so you're going to go after trying to get clean water into Africa. Maybe over here it's you can take care of widows. Maybe over here it's just you're going to go after your neighborhood because you see the injustice that happens to people. Maybe over here, maybe it's that you're a teacher. You get kids come into your school every single day and you know the horror they see at home and you're just going to love them through it. I don't know what your one is. I can't answer that for you. But I can tell you this, our world shakes whenever Christians remember the beauty of what we've been saved from. And when we decide that we're going to fight after anything that doesn't match up with that. The world never looks the same. And that's what the church is supposed to be. We got an ugly history. There are things that litter our history that are ugly. There are also things in our history that are beautiful whenever we remember who our God is. We can trust a church responsible for a lot of injustice because of what happens when we catch hold of the gospel. And those times are far more prevalent. And then you and I get to go into our world, radically having lives radically altered by the love of Jesus. love people, love our neighbor as ourselves, as we love the Lord our God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. If you will, if you bow your head and give us just a moment to respond. One group of people that my heart's been heavy for all week long is, uh, I know just based on statistics that there are a lot of you in here who are been hurt by the church or individual in the church who might have been abused physically, emotionally. Maybe it was a parent that said they were a Christian and treated you in unchristian ways, ungodly ways. 
And if that's you and you're comfortable with it, you don't have to by any means. I'm going to pray for you either way. But if that's you and you would like me to pray for you, will you just toss your hand up real quick? You can throw it up and throw it right back down. I can see. Father, I thank you that you are healer. We believe that the God who did still does and the God who heals still heals. And it's not just like, it's not just physical healings. You heal emotionally as well. So God, over each and every person that's been wounded, hurt, people who profess to be followers of Jesus, would you heal and would you be near? You promise in scripture to be near the brokenhearted. So would you be near? And God, over all of us, would you give us the grace to see the one, the one issue, the one injustice, the one person. Give us the grace to see, to not be the priest or Levite taking that convenient, easy way out because we're running from one place to the next. Would you give us the grace to see and the boldness to act? We want to be people and believers of action. It's in your name that we pray. Amen. Man, if you will, if you'll go ahead and stand up.